Okay, according to my clock, now is the favorable time. That's a good 2 Corinthians quote. You should have two things. You should have a, uh, a little, looks like a bookmark. This is a psalm, Psalm 47. We're going to start with that, and you'll see why by the end. And then you should have my uh, handout for you that has the overview of 2 Corinthians. I don't know how much we'll actually um, use this, but that I just give you each week. It helps me to have to think through how does the whole epistle kind of fit together. Uh, and since I'm thinking about it, I write it up and I pass it on to you and you can do with it as you will. Okay. Um, but first, pull out that psalm. Psalm 47. This was our psalm on Sunday. And um, the part of the service that we sing a psalm is called, does anybody know what we call that part of the service? Sam? The introit, which means entrance. So after the confession of sins, we kind of enter. That's, that's like the preparation. That's like washing your hands before you eat, right? Um, and the introit is the entrance to the kind of the service itself. And here's the words. I'm just going to read it to you the first time. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Okay, now, if you hear that psalm read, what, does, what happens as you hear that read? Do you think that's a good psalm? It's a pretty good psalm, isn't it? Those are great words. But if you hear it read, or especially if you're just, you know, you're doing like some kind of a daily reading plan and you're, you know, the reading, it comes up, read Psalm 47. Most of you, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess, most of you don't read out loud when you're at home. So you don't even, you don't even say these words out loud, probably. You just read them quietly in your head. And there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance. Why? Because it says, shout, <laughs> and we don't shout. And when we're reading it, it says, sing, and we're not singing. Now, in church, on Sunday morning, we sang it, so that's pretty good, right? But there's still a little, little bit of dissonance, you know, cognitive dissonance. Why? Well, we were singing, but we weren't shouting. I, didn't, I don't remember anybody shouting. And we definitely didn't clap, right? Um, nobody started. Okay, so what we're going to do tonight, we're going to sing and we're going to shout and we're going to clap. And you're just going to see, I just want you to experience this once. Um, I'm not saying that our services are, we're going to start clapping. Glory to God in the heart. We're not going to do that. But uh, here, what we're going to do, we're going to sing it like we would on Sunday morning. And at the end of that line that says, clap your hands, all peoples, we're going to clap seven times, because that seems like a good, it was either three or seven, and I figured we'll do seven. Now, you cannot golf clap. Everybody know what a golf clap is? You don't want to be too loud. You have to clap like you're praising a king. So we want seven big claps, and when we shout, we're going to shout, Hallelujah. Or what we'll do it the Hebrew way. We're going to shout hallelujah. Okay, so everybody practice that with me. One, two, three. Hallelujah. One more time. One, two, three. Hallelujah. Okay, so we're going to sing it. And at the end of the clap line, we're going to clap. At the end of the shout line, we'll shout hallelujah. And you'll just see um, it's not that reading quietly in your head is wrong or singing it, chanting it the way we do in church is wrong, but um, there's kind of layers to the onions of the Psalms, and this will come back in the end when we talk about the kiss of peace, 
the holy kiss that gets mentioned in 2 Corinthians, okay? So it's going to sound like, let me find the tune here. We're going to chant it like this. Dun, 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 Ready? Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Hallelujah! For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, hallelujah, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. One more shout. Hallelujah! Now, there's, we're only missing one thing. What are we missing? Stomping. Well, we could, it doesn't say stomp. We need a trumpet. Yeah, we need, where was the trumpet? What verse was that? Verse 5. We need somebody to blast. Bring your trumpet next week. So we can blast it. Okay, uh, put your, you can put that psalm away and open your Bible then to 2 Corinthians. Now, I know you're just on the edge of your seat. What's he going to say about the holy kiss? Are we, are we going to kiss each other tonight? We'll see. We'll see. Um, <coughs> 2 Corinthians. So who can summarize for us the state of things? Um, what, was, what was the... Um, the, your general tenor or your takeaway, how would you summarize 1 Corinthians? What do you think, Sam? Pretty bad. Anybody want to add to that? 1 Corinthians, things in Corinth were pretty bad. What else, Jacob? They blew it. They blew it, okay. <laughs> in what way? Is it that they just were reading the Psalms instead of singing them and they didn't clap like they were supposed to? What, were, what was the problem in Corinth? Okay, there was, there was uh, various kinds of sexual immorality, so their sexual life was all out of whack. What else? Yeah, remember there were these factions or divisions and, yeah, little cliques. And each, each division, it's not hard to imagine, each little division said, we're the real we're the true Christians. We're the good ones. And if you're not part of us, you know, you might be in the club, but you're not really in the club. So you had the uh, divisions, and they were grouped after who their leader was, right? We belonged, we're with Paul. We're the Paul Christians. We're the Apollos Christians. We're the Peter Christians. And then the ultimate trump card is, well, that was Cephas, yeah, Peter. The ultimate one was, we don't, we don't follow any of those men. We only follow Christ, right? You Lutheran, do you ever get this question? Why do you worship Luther? 
right? Um, we get, there's, there used to be a guy who would put, he'd write on a three by five card and he'd stick, I know who it was, so I won't say his name, um, but he would write, why, do, why would you worship Luther when you could worship Jesus? Um, the irony was he was a Mormon. <laughs> and um, so, uh, but I, I never confronted him on these things, but we'd get these anonymous three by five cards. Why would you worship Luther? Well, of course, the ant- we don't worship Luther. Um, but you can see that sometimes people will kind of pull that out. Like if you mention any human name, well, you're, you're, you know, you're committing some kind of idolatry. You should only follow Jesus and not any of these other things. Okay. So Corinth, very divided, sexual immorality. Um, there, were all kind, there were various other problems, but I think the divisions is the main thing. Okay. And I'm just going to uh, remind you of kind of the timeline here. You have this on your page, or you have a little more detail to the timeline. Paul planted the church in the year 51, give or take, right? Um, and then, but to the best of our ability to date it, um, 1 Corinthians is written in the springtime. Okay? He mentions at the very end, I'm going to stay here in Ephesus until Pentecost. And Pentecost, you know, if you think Passover, our Easter, and Pentecost, we know when that is, right? That's spring, late spring, um, early summer, you might call it. It just depends on when Easter was that year. But springtime in 55. And he sends the letter, Paul sends the letter, not through the U.S. Postal Service, um, but he sends it through his right-hand man, Timothy. Okay? So Timothy takes the letter to Corinth, and Timothy probably then is like, okay, Timothy, I'm sending you into the, into the, wolf, the wolves. Okay? Um, you go, you deliver the letter, and you tell them to straighten up. Right? You give them a couple sermons, a couple Bible classes, you deal with the people who need to be dealt with, and then come on back and tell me how it's going. Okay? So in your mind, imagine Timothy taking the letter and coming back to Paul. And there's three reports that Timothy could give to Paul. What are the three reports? Yes, no, and maybe. Yes, no, and maybe. Right. And it seems like the report came back, I put a negative sign here, as not good. Okay? Now, we're not told about that. If you read the book of Acts, you're not told that. And if you read um, 2 Corinthians, there's also no mention of Timothy's return. The reason I, th- I think this is if you look uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, here's what he says in verse 16. So he's in Ephesus, and he says, I should have I brought a map. I'm sorry, I didn't bring a map. He said, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send me on my way to Judea. So Ephesus is here, Macedonia is here, and Corinth is down here. So what Paul is saying is, and you have to go across the water to do that, what Paul is saying is things are in bad enough shape there that in my mind I thought I better go to them first and then go up to Macedonia, and then come back to Corinth, right? The only reason I can think that he would go to Corinth first is something's wrong in Corinth, because otherwise he would have traveled up around by land. He would have gone around uh, the water and come down to Corinth after Macedonia, which is what he ends up doing, okay? So instead of following that plan, what he says here in 2 Corinthians is, Um, Instead of doing that, I sent you my left-hand man, right? Timothy's the right-hand man, Titus is the left-hand man. I sent you Titus because I I couldn't come to you. And if you you keep reading, look what he says down here in chapter 2, verse 1. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there that to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Okay, so you get what he's saying there? It's not, you know, it's not explicit. They would get this right away because they lived through all these things. Um, but we have to kind of 
toss it around in our minds a little bit. What he's saying is, I didn't come to you because you weren't ready. If I would have come to you, I would have had to straighten you up. Hi. Oh, he sent Titus. Okay, yeah, and he didn't want to go um, cause them pain. Okay, so he wanted to go when they were ready for him. So he sends him Titus. Um, and then he has to wait to see what's the report from Titus. Okay, and if you look, uh, there's a couple of places here in 2 Corinthians where he actually talks about Titus coming back. So look in chapter 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So he didn't find Titus where he thought he would. Titus was taking a little longer. Um, But you get a hint here that he is going to meet up with Titus and he's going to get good news. And in fact, if you go on to chapter 7, chapter 7 verse 6 has this mention about Titus. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that my letter grieved you, though only for a while, as it is... I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Okay? So, Titus's report, Timothy's report was, they didn't want to hear you, Paul, or something like that, right? Um, they, I gave them your message, and they told me to take a hike or they just ignored me, or maybe they put up with him for a while. You know, they listened to Timothy, um, and they did one of these. Yeah, okay, whatever you say, Timothy. Oh, good, he's gone, right? And now we don't have to li- They disregarded him, okay? But here, what's the report? What's the outcome of 1 Corinthians? They took, his, they took his, his criticism to heart. They listened. And what do we, what's the biblical word for taking criticism to heart? Repentance, right? This is, this is so great, because when we think of Corinth, um, I think Bill mentioned this last week, sometimes churches that are in turmoil, they get a Corinthian sermon, right? You guys are being like the Corinthians, right? Well, that should also include repentance, because 1 Corinthians, here, this, is, um, this is what's so great about having both of these epistles, you see a congregation all out of whack and all divided and has all kinds of problems, which is like every congregation, right? Show me a perfect congregation, and, you know, it's just people pretending, right? Um, but Second Corinthians shows you that even a goofed-up, whacked-out congregation is still brought back into the fold, okay? And I go to uh, the length here of kind of talking through that, one, because I want you to, to know and associate not just, um, how did you put it, Jacob? They blew it. Yeah, the Corinthians, they blew it, but they also, they got it. They blew it and they got it. And that is like every Christian, right? And that's like every congregation, right? This is, this is how congregational life happens. And this is how individual Christians live out their life. We're kind of constantly blowing it and getting it and blowing it and getting it. And through those sufferings, through that cycle, God actually leads us in, how did Paul put it? Triumphal procession. Okay? So that's kind of the big picture here of 
Corinthians. I want you to have the whole story. And the rest of the letter, Paul says, all right, so now that I'm going to come to you and everything is pretty much in order, um, I want you to keep on going so that when I come, everything is all ready and we can, we can move on ahead. All right. Go back to uh, chapter 1 and you'll see, um, I think you'll see some of that come out in the opening, um, the opening paragraph of 2 Corinthians. So in 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 3 through 7, who would like to read that for us? 3 to 7. Go ahead, Todd. Read it nice and loud. Now, this is going to be a really hard question, so put on your thinking hats. What is the theme of this paragraph? This is, you probably won't get it because you have to go to seminary and understand Greek <laughs> to get it. What's the theme here? Suffering. S- okay, suffering is part of it, but... Comfort. comfort. How many times does he say comfort there, right? Um, if you count them up, it's ten. Right? And so this is, and it also, I wrote it on the board, uh, for those of you who didn't count, right? Um, this is the theme of 2 Corinthians. I, take the, I would take this as the whole, this is the big picture, right? Galatians is about justification. 1 Thessalonians is encouragement and sanctification, always abounding. 1 Corinthians is division and unity in Christ. 2 Corinthians is suffering and being comforted. Suffering and being comforted. Suffering and being comforted. Okay? Now, in a minute here, we'll kind of list out some of the different kinds of suffering. Um, how many of you like to talk about your sufferings? Be honest. Sam and Jacob are the only honest ones. It is the most common thing. Let me tell you how bad I've got it. Right? <laughs> It is the most, it's, the, it's like basic human nature. I've got, I have such a hard life. Let me tell you about it. You should feel sorry for me. Let me tell you all the bad things that happened to me today. And how many, how many bad things does it take for you to say, I had a bad day today? About one, right? The traffic was just awful on Lone Oak Road this morning. It was really bad. I, had, I ran into a red light and it was humid. You know, that's a bad day. You think about all the things that go right in a day and like three bad things and we are just overwhelmed. This is awful. This is terrible. It's a really bad day. I just want to put it behind me and move on, right? Um, Now, Paul here is, he does say any kind of suffering. So 2 Corinthians has something to say about any of your sufferings, even the most like simple, mundane kind of sufferings. Um, the kind that we like to talk about. Um, but there's other sufferings that we don't like to talk about. Those are the more serious ones, right? So let's just put up here on the board, what are the different sorts of suffering that a person could have? Jacob? Getting bit by a dog. Getting bit by a dog. Uh, yeah, okay. We'll call it physical. Physical sufferings. Financial sufferings. Emotional. Health is physical. Uh, somebody said relationship, or I, I'm going to use, since everything is ending in AL, relational. <laughs> right? That would probably go along with emotional, but it's, it's not just emotions. Anything else? Okay, I'm, where does that fit in the picture here? Well, I consider addiction 
I, just, I was just kind of testing you, Hayes. Is, is addiction just a physical problem? Is it emotional? Is it mental? Is it really? Yeah. And that, that's true. That was kind of my point here at the end. You, you've jumped the gun, which is good. Um, we can divide these things up on the board, right? But when you, let's take gyms as an example here. When you lose your job and you're not sure how you're going to make the next payment on your house or something, does that just remain, well, that's a financial suffering, and that doesn't affect my mind or my emotions or my relationship with my wife. We just keep, you know, that, we just put it in a box or we put it in a drawer and we say, we'll talk about that later, sweetheart, right? That's not how life works. That's not how the human person is designed. We are, um, we can chop these things up. We can make these divisions. But when you go through the suffering, it affects the whole person, right? And... Uh, we, would, we could even include here, sometimes we talk about spiritual suffering as a subcategory. What I would encourage you to say is, all of these things are spiritual. My whole life is spiritual. It all, it all affects me. I am a living spirit. Okay, so think about um, a person, let's take a, a hospitalization. Somebody has, um, you know, you, you have cancer. You don't just worry about your health, do you? You start to think about death and heaven, and you think about your relationships, right? See how it touches everything? Okay. Now, um, what Paul here talks about, do you have something to add to that, Jacob? Is having a, is getting sick a yeah, getting sick would be a physical. Yep, that's your health. Your health is negatively affected here. Now, what Paul kind of specifies here is a certain kind of suffering. Look at verse 5. He says, as we share abundantly in, he doesn't say financial or emotional or anything like that. He says, as we share in Christ's suffering. So, we're going to be, we're going to talk specifically about sharing in Christ's suffering in a minute, right? But let's keep reading and see how he talks about why does, you know, this is like the old question, why do, why do good things happen to bad? No, that's backwards. <laughs> um, that's a one that we, we wonder about too. Why do, why do good things happen to bad people? Um, why do bad things happen to good people, right? Um, well, there's a lot of ways you could answer that, but here's at least one avenue of an answer. Look at what he says here. Um, Todd, keep reading for us, 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a dead, deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf and blessings granted through the prayers of many. Okay. Did anybody, could you, could you kind of, if somebody were to say, what's kind of the central um, thought there in that whole paragraph? Paul talks about, you know, I, we were suffering incredibly, and we don't know exactly what, you know, was he put in prison in Ephesus? That doesn't come up in the book of Acts, but Acts doesn't report everything that happened to Paul. Um, it seems like he was put in prison, and they were going to kill him. And he despaired of life itself. We felt we had received the sentence of death. And if, you know, you know a little bit about the Apostle Paul, he's probably also worried about what's going on with the church in Corinth. Did my work all come to nothing there? You know, I wrote them that epistle. Timothy came back and said, I don't know, Paul. They might not, they might go the wrong way. Right? So he's despairing. Why did God let Paul despair? Or why did he even send him these sufferings? What's the central point? 
Yeah. So that we might learn not to depend on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Okay? So think about that. We'll, we'll talk about it specifically in a minute, but just kind of as a general rule, why do, why do bad things happen to Christians? Why doesn't God put a shield around you and never let anything, you know, you can be bubble boy. <laughs> if the gospel made you bubble boy, people would probably sign up, right? Uh, oh boy, I can, I can escape all suffering. You wouldn't learn to rely on God, okay? So part of the reason that you suffer, any suffering, whether it's physical, financial, emotional, mental, relational, addictional, um, whatever else, all, part of the, what God is doing is taking away a false hope, taking away some... Now, that's easy to say, and we can all affirm it when we say it, um, but when you experience it, much harder, right? Because those things that we hold on to, think especially here of physical health, financial well-being, when that stuff gets taken away, it hurts. <laughs> it's, it's why we call it suffering, right? Um, that stuff hurts. And what gets put in place of it is that you rely on God who raises the dead, okay? So that's what it does for you, but Paul also just got done saying, why does God comfort Christians? Why does he give that comfort? Part of it is so you learn something, so your faith is strengthened. But it's not just about me, is it? Look back uh, to what Paul said before in verse 5. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. What does he mean by this? How can what happens to me be for your comfort? Or how can what happens to you be for my comfort? Okay. Right? We live, we love these kind of stories, don't we? How, who doesn't love a good underdog story? <laughs> and if that's true about, like, sports teams, it's especially true about fellow Christians. When I see how a Christian endures, how they don't give up, they don't lose hope, especially if I know the person, right? It's, it's cool to read about, you know, saints from, I don't know, the year 300, who refused to, you know, pinch incense and worship Caesar. Those things are inspiring. But it's even cooler when it's like, I see Rich Diefenbach, and I see how, through his suffering, God comforts him, all right? So part of it is by example, right? I can just see it in you. But Paul is not the kind of guy who just lives by example. He does that, but he also is always talking, right? Um, and so, you know, if you go through, take, we'll take the cancer route again, or we could do it, we could do it with any of these categories, right? Financial. When you go through something and you suffer and are comforted, what does that then kind of enable you to do? You, you, yeah, somebody else goes through the same thing. You don't just move on and say, good, whew, I'm glad that chapter of my life is over. Uh, but then you say, hey, this happened to me. I know just what you're going through. God got me through it, right? And even, even a simple testimony like that, you know, that's not the most profound, deep thought in the world. God was with me. That is uh, part of the comfort that Paul is talking about here, all right? Now, he says that we share in Christ's suffering. What, what kind of suffering, what's uh, unique about Christ's suffering? When you think of Jesus' suffering, what do you think of? Okay, injustice. He was innocent. He who knew no sin was crucified as a sinner. Okay, we think, think of the cross, right? I think it's like, almost like, like a mass attack that, yeah. that impacts so many people that it, it forces them together. Yeah, certainly, right? Jesus was not just, um, it wasn't just he had one enemy. It was like everybody was his enemy. And even his friends abandoned him, right? Didn't understand him. 
There's all kinds of suffering there. What's, what is unique about Christ's suffering that's unlike ours? Yeah, he, he propitiated the wrath of God. My suffering does not accomplish your salvation, right? You know, it's like Paul said uh, in 1 Corinthians, did I die for you? <laughs> no, I didn't die for you. But then he says this in 2 Corinthians, but I do suffer for you, right? And so let's, let's just think through that. In what way do Christians participate or do what, how do we share Christ's suffering. Christ suffered for the good of the whole world, right? Now, I don't carry the weight, I don't carry the sins of the world on my shoulders, but Paul just got done saying here, when we suffer and are comforted, it's for whose, whose benefit? The other people around me, right? Here is, here is the other great thing that you got to remember when you're suffering. When you're suffering, you're tempted to think, why is this happening to me? I'm all alone. There's no point to this, right? There's no purpose here, right? But what Paul's saying here is that in your suffering, you are suffering for the good of others, right? You suffer for someone else. Let me give you, that, that can maybe sound abstract, but it's, it's really important uh, because Life is suffering, isn't it? Life is suffering. That's why we got to talk about it, uh, and we like to talk about it. I ran into a lot of red lights today. Um, how do parents suffer for their children? Do they? Constantly, yeah. They're constantly sacrificing themselves for the benefit of their children. Now, Christian parents uh, don't get out of suffering, in fact, they suffer even more, right? Because not only do they suffer the, oh, got to buy food. That's what everybody tells me. Having kids is really expensive, Pastor. And I, I don't know. <laughs> I just got used to it, so I, I don't think about it. Um, can't, have, can't have kids because they're too expensive. Well, I'm happy to, to lose my money so that I can have, I don't know, that seems like a win to me right? Um, but that is what Paul is saying here, is that you suffer a loss so that someone else benefits. And even in kind of mundane, common ways, that happens in every Christian's life, right? That happens with parents, happens with friends. Do you suffer when you're someone's friend? You probably don't even think of it as suffering, but when the phone rings and it's Mary Beth Schrader, what do you do, Carol? Ugh, ignore, right? <laughs> you pick it up and you give up whatever you were doing to listen to Mary Beth tell you about how bad her day was, right? Um, you suffer. You suffer for her good, right? Now, those are sort of surface level things. Those are kind of common things. We probably don't even think of that as suffering. I would say that is part of suffering, okay? Now, we can also see in Paul's life we can see this more clearly, right? Paul, we would, we would all say, man, it's pretty obvious how Paul is suffering. He is, he is sharing in Christ's suffering. How? Yeah, he's proclaiming the name of Jesus and people are putting him in prison and they're telling him they want to kill him uh, because he's talking about Jesus, right? Um, he's suffered, he's lost everything. So the, and you know, why is he doing all of that? To build up the church, okay? So we, our sufferings do not, um, our sufferings don't earn someone's salvation, but our sufferings, we share in Christ's suffering by suffering for someone else, for the good of someone else, okay? And especially as Christians, it's not just, um, you know, I want to take time to talk to somebody. There is that element to it, but it also is we make sacrifices for the good of the gospel, for the preaching of the gospel. And we share that comfort that we have received with others who, uh, who are in need of it. 
Okay. Does that kind of make a little bit of sense? There, there's something of a mystery here because when we think of Jesus suffering, we think he died once and for all, and it seems silly to think of my sufferings as being anything like Christ's. That he did the real suffering. And then the apostles, they had it bad. And then, like, pastors, you know, maybe they have it bad. But the rest of us, we don't suffer all that much. Well, we're all in it together, right? I think that's also part of Paul's message here, is that he doesn't suffer apart from the Corinthians. Now, one other way that the Corinthians suffer uh, here, how did the, think of what you know now about the history there of the church of Corinth. What kind of suffering did they go through as a congregation? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the life of the Corinthian congregation suffered, and what, then what happened? Well, they changed, but what happened before they changed? They were in a bad way, and before they could change, what had to happen? Dad came home, right? <laughs> Mom said, you know, Chloe went to Paul and said, Paul, it's really bad over there in Corinth. And Paul said, Timothy, you take them this letter and you tell them if they don't shape up, I'm coming. And when I get there, I'm going to straighten them out, right? And that was suffering for the Corinthians. Look, look, uh, go to chapter 2. You can see it again here. We read this already. But look what he says in chapter 2, verse 3. I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should make me rejoice. So I, I wrote to you to get the, the discipline. You know, I, I told you how upset I was. I yelled at you in my letter so that when I got there, I wouldn't have to yell again. That's what he's saying. And that experience of getting yelled at, do any of you like being in trouble? Not fun, is it, Sam? Yeah, we don't like getting in trouble. Um, it hurts. It's painful. It's suffering. Yep, right. And then t- if they really misunderstood, you know, the, <laughs> you could e- very easily see how that would, would happen. The group that said, we are of Paul, they'd say, see, I told you, right? I told you you should straighten up. And Timothy was sent to say, nope, you don't do that. This sermon is not for the person three pews in front of you. It's for you, <laughs> right? Um, so they, they all experienced that kind of suffering, the suffering of repentance, and I want to just read with you, this is such a great, there's so many parts of 2 Corinthians that are um, wonderful. Um, but go to uh, 2 Corinthians 7, and Paul's going to talk about the difference between um, godly grief or repentance and kind of worldly remorse. Look in chapter 7, uh, verse 10. 7, verse 10. Here's what he says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Okay? What's the difference between godly grief and worldly grief? Worldly grief is full of regret, full of death. Godly grief is you don't lose anything. You gain things through godly grief, right? Look at what they gained. They gained earnestness, um, indignation. How, could we, how did we let ourselves get this, this screwed up? 
Have you ever had that realization? (laughs) Repentance, I know I've said this in sermons, but it's good to repeat. Repentance is like the worst day of your life and the best day all rolled together. How could I have been so, what in, how, how did I let this happen? But it's also the day that there's, okay, now something new can come in, right? So this indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, this is all the good that came out of their suffering. And it was good for them. It was also good as an example for all of the churches, right? Hey, if Corinth can get their act together, <laughs> if, God, if God can save Corinth, he can save Paducah. He can save America. He can, it's it's kind of like Paul, right? Paul said, hey, this is what happened to me. I was the worst of the worst. I was the chief of sinners, persecutor. And God showed his mercy to me as an example to anybody. Nobody is beyond the pale of God's mercy, right? Kind of see that same thing happening here in Corinth. Any other thoughts here on godly grief and worldly grief? I just feel like there's so much going on in the world that people's ideas and the way they feel about them are so weird and so away from the church. Presently? Yes. Yeah, well, okay. So we, we suffer these things, right? Now let's, let's see if we can think through our sufferings in light of what we've been talking about. What, why, does, why is God letting the world go um, to pot? <laughs> why, why is it getting all messed up? What's part of the answer to that? We could say, well, we're getting what we deserve. And that's right. That's true. You sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. You want God to leave you alone? Eventually he leaves you alone, and it's not pretty. Okay? But what did we just read in, in 2 Corinthians? Go back to chapter 1. Look at verse 9. We felt that we received the sentence of death. Oh man, I feel like America is dying. I turn on the news and it's all, what did you say? Weird. <laughs> That's like the nice word. Okay. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So part of the answer here is what? To call us back to him, right? To, okay, all these things that we tried, all these great ideas that we thought we had, man, they were bad ideas. <laughs> They were really bad ideas. And if you don't know it yet, it's going to get even weirder. It's going to get even worse. Okay? So part of the answer was to teach us to rely on God. The church has to, the, the church is the, the center of it all. I know that can sometimes sound like narcissistic, but I, I want you to think that way. I want you to think that everything depends on the church. It all rides on the church. Because I think it does. And part of what's happening is a wake-up, not just, hey, we got to get our political house in order. Well, you can do that. That's good and fine. But what really counts is what happens in the church. If the church doesn't get its act, if Corinth doesn't get it together, there's no hope for Greece, <laughs> right, uh, or, for, or for whoever. So part of it is God is using these things that we suffer to teach us to rely more on him and look for, how, how would we put this? Get your wisdom from scripture, not from the world, you know? Um, and once you experience that comfort, then you're able to share that comfort with others, okay? I, I don't know if you wanted to, I, I can't give you more of an answer than that, but I think, I think both of those things are true. You get what you deserve sometimes, Right? Um, and we could see that in a lot of ways. And also God does, the, he sends these disciplines to us to say, don't rely on that stuff, rely on me. Okay, other thoughts here on Second Corinthians? We've got about 10 minutes. I can take you on a whirlwind through other sections. Yes, Sam? Oh, you want to talk about the kiss? Okay, yeah, good. Thank you for reminding me. I'm glad you reminded me. First, though, let me just show you a couple of the, um, we're just going to dip our toe in here, the big sections that everybody should know 
about 2 Corinthians. So if you look in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, after Paul has kind of done his introductory, you know, this is going to be all about suffering and being comforted, um, and he talks about how things were all up in the air about himself and then about Corinth, and lo and behold, Christ leads us in triumph, right? So even through our sufferings, he brings us through our sufferings. And then he asks this question, who is sufficient for these things? And chapters 3 and 4 is all about the glory of the church, the glory of the new, what he calls the new covenant. And he compares it to the glory of the old. How many of you think of the Old Testament as a time of glory? Does anybody? I kind of wish that I could see the temple, don't you? Wouldn't that be cool to go back and, and to see it all in action, to smell the barbecue? Right, and all the incense. There was a lot of evidence, um, was a lot of evidence in the Old Testament of God leading his people and the people falling away. And yeah. Back. It's kind of like the church, isn't it? <laughs> right? Um, the, my point here is, in saying this is we usually think of the Old Testament as like dreary and gloomy and there was a lot of blood, and there was. But what Paul says is the Old Testament was really glorious, guys, but the New Testament makes it look pathetic, right? The, the glory of the old is fading away because of the surpassing glory of the new. So if you look here at, um, oh, where does he say this? Look in, um, look in chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, ugh, carved in letters on stone, where, where, where in the Bible do things get carved in letters on stone? Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments Mount Sinai, right? Um, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. That time is over. Will not the ministry of the Spirit, now, we live in the time of the Spirit, have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, temple, priesthood, sacrifices, ten commandments, the oracles of God, the prophets, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all that great stuff. What used to have glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. All right? So he's setting up this whole thing. The old was great. The new is even greater. But look in chapter 4, verse 7. If it's so glorious, why doesn't everybody just sign up, right? We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. Have you heard the, these verses before? Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul shares in Christ's suffering so that the church may be brought to life. Christians suffer so that others may be saved. Right? Same, same theme just brought out here. Um, then in chapter 5, uh, these are verses I think that you'll have, have heard before too. Look in uh, verses 18 through 21. This is, you've heard me talk about the great exchange before. Christ takes, Christ shares my place that I may share his. This is really the, uh, the place where that comes from. Who would like to read this for us? This is a great passage for somebody else to read. Somebody not an uppled. 
18, 18 through 21. Go for it, Mike. You can hear that exchange language there in, in verse 21. He who, let's just make sure we all understand this. Who is the one who knew no sin? Jesus. In what way did he become sin? Yeah, he, um, the word there is, he, you could think of it this way. He became the sin offering. He is the, he is in our place. We call that vicarious. He suffers these things not because he sinned, but because we did. And he has taken our place. Right? He's our vicar. So that in him, so we get, he gets our stuff and we get his. It's a, Luther said it's a sweet swap. A sweet swap. It's a good deal. <laughs> right? um, that's maybe putting it crassly. But, but that's what Paul is saying. It's a pretty sweet deal. Right? And you become the righteousness of God. Okay. Um, the other passages that uh, people often go to in uh, chapters 8 and 9, he's gotten through the point where, okay, we're through the suffering, we're, we've come to repentance, um, Corinthians, and now in chapters 8 and 9, he's saying, all right, I'm sending Titus back to you, and I'm going to be right behind him, and when I get there, it's going to be all good, and here's what I want you to be ready to do. And what he wants them to be ready to do is you, not kiss each other. You're ready for the kiss, buddy. I like that. <laughs> Chapter 9, the, uh, my, my Bible has this subtitle or header, The Collection for Christians in Jerusalem. So this is, you know, if you ever have, um, have any of you been part of congregations that do a pledge card, fill out a pledge card for your giving every year. We're going to give this much, you know, this year. This is usually the, the reading for that day. God loves a cheerful giver. That comes here from 2 Corinthians 9. Um, and you can see that. Look at 9 verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows abundantly will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in all, every good work. And including the work of giving, contributing, participating uh, in that charity and relief. Okay, so that's in 2 Corinthians. And then the last thing that everybody knows about from 2 Corinthians, or, or often people know about, go to chapter 12. Paul comes back to this idea of his own suffering. And he's comparing himself to um, other supposed super-apostles. So there's guys coming around troubling the Corinthians, maybe some of those leaders who were stirring up the divisions in the church, who were saying, oh, follow me, we follow Christ, we're the super um, Christians, we never suffer anything. Paul says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to boast a little bit, I'm going to talk like a madman. And he goes through all of his credentials, and what he spends the most time talking about is, here's how much I suffered. This is, this is the proof of how good I am, right? On the back of my, base, on the back of my apostle card, <laughs> it's, here's the list. Here's all my sufferings, shipwrecks and beatings and all this stuff, okay? And then he goes on to say, now, people want to have great revelations and visions. Well, I had those too. 
and he talks about his visions and revelations. But what he comes to at the end, what he says is even better than that, is this. Look at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. You've probably all heard that before, right? A thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why, why does God cause us to suffer? Why did Paul have to suffer? To keep him from being conceited and... That's kind of putting it the negative. I like that, Bill. I like your attitude, right? So you don't get full of yourself, right? God kind of keeps you down. But it's the positive side is to, you depend on God. Instead of depending on your own power, your own strength, your, you know, just go through the whole list here, your own abilities, God keeps the cross on the church so that we depend on him. Now, this thorn in the flesh... Um, here's what I think. I think Paul's thorn in the flesh, what was he always suffering everywhere he went? Got beat up. I don't, I, I don't think it was physical problems. He probably, had, uh, he probably needed some Tums. He probably was always worried. I think it's his constant concern for the churches, and everywhere he goes, there's people who come in behind and try to mess it all up. So in Galatians, it was the, what he called the Judaizers. In 1 Corinthians, it's these super apostles. Everywhere he goes, imagine if every job you ever took, somebody came in behind you and undid all your work. Okay? I think that's what he's talking about, this thorn in the... God, why do you let these troublers keep coming in? Why don't you just keep them out? And God says, so that you have to trust me. <laughs> yes? Okay, the kiss. Go to, go to chapter 13, the very end. This is what your, the header of your Bible will call like final words, final greetings, something like that, final warnings. Um, chapter 13, verse 11 and 12 and 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. all right? Now, the reason that we started with that psalm right, is because I just want you to be aware of that what I call cognitive dissonance. We, we oftentimes just pass right over simple commands that the Bible gives that we, we just sort of say, well, that's there, clap your hands, that's there to make us think about how we should be, what, enthusiastic in our worship? It doesn't mean literally clap your hands, right? And the same thing happens, do you know how many times Paul says you should greet each other with a kiss? It's in, I think it's in four of his epistles. And then it's in Peter's, so it's not even just a Paul thing. It's a Peter thing, too. Okay? Now, we read that, and we think, what? <laughs> here's, here's what I think. I, I usually would read that and say, well, that was just for them. Right? We, you know, we can just, I don't know, say good morning to each other. That's, you know, or we shake each other's hands. Right? We should be nice. He's saying be nice to each other. Right? Isn't that what it means? Greet each other. Why don't we kiss? Each, why don't we kiss in church? Well, that surely the Bible doesn't mean that we should actually kiss each other. That would be weird <laughs> and gross. It'd be almost as gross as drinking from the common cup. You know? Okay. 
I'm not saying that next week we're going to start kissing each other, okay? But there was a time in the church where the, there was the, the peace of the Lord be with you. The answer was amen. And then do you know what everybody did? They kissed each other. Now, the men kissed men and the women kissed women. Unless you were a family, you know, you could kiss your wife. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't free time to go, you know, kiss your girlfriend, <laughs> right? Um, and apparently that practice goes all the way back to the Apostle Paul. Now, we, we hear that and we think, ooh, weird, creepy, gross. Why would it be beneficial? What's the difference between a kiss and a handshake? We'll just end on this. This isn't a joke. It sounds like a weird <laughs> pastor joke. Um, what's the difference between a kiss and a handshake? More intimate. That's a weird word, Todd. I can't believe you said it out loud. But it is. That's right. More personal. In, that's the same. That's what he means, right? More intimate. When I, when I kiss you, that's a weird thought to have in your mind, but when someone kisses you, what do you experience? You smell them, right? You, that you, there's even, it leaves its mark on me, right? Especially if you're wearing a lot of lipstick. <laughs> you, know, you can see, you get the person on you, right? When I shake your hand, maybe I smell you, but the, a handshake, shake my hand, Jacob, it kind of keeps the distance, doesn't it? If I wanted to go in for a hug and Jacob stuck his hand out, oh, oh sorry, that's right, we're Americans. Right? Yeah, sure. The, the kiss is the, you know, the intimacy, the love, the sharing of one another. That's the point. And this, you know, think of what he's just gotten done talking about reconciliation. The real sign of reconciliation is not now we shake hands. I mean, we do that. That's kind of how it's, what it's become for us. But the real sign of reconciliation is how do you know that your wife has really forgiven you? It's when she kisses you. You know? <laughs> we'll just say that, all right? Um, <laughs> yes? Yeah. There's, there's quite a few kisses in the Bible. And uh, we, we kind of skip. I, I had never thought about I just listened to a, a guy give a big, long paper about this. I had never thought about it. I had never. I've read these things, and since it's at the end of the epistle, I've kind of turned my mind off, like, okay, he's gotten done doing all the teaching and all the really important stuff is over. This is just like, you know, I don't know. It doesn't mean anything. Be nice to It's filler. Yeah, as if the Holy Spirit inspired filler. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just silly. Uh, but it's, it's just a think about these things. And if you have good thoughts on how we can start the holy kiss again, let me know. Kiss my, oh no, we don't want that. That's the, the wrong message. But, okay, here's, here's the other thing. Imagine the diff, if you, if you came to a church and, uh, and they all kissed each other, or there was some kind of symbolic kiss, what would you think about that place? Kind of weird. I, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when you come into it, that is, this is really striking. They must really care about each other. <laughs> no? Well, yeah, you, you, I, I know what you mean, Mary. You probably couldn't get past, this is really weird. Yeah. But there, there would be a profound, I think there'd be a profound, it would leave an impression on you. It would certainly say something about this, something, there's something different about this place than other places I've been. Um, and it's, I think that's why it's there in the Bible. You know, it's not, a, it's not filler. It's not a mistake. It's there. It's given to us. Uh, to talk about and think about. Yes? Okay, so you have to kind of this up for me, okay? Last night at the dinner table, we had this big conversation about this holy kiss. Yeah. Um, 